I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are all so interconnected. So in every episode, we interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and reconnecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, Monica. I'm so excited to be with you here in person. I know. It's always such a treat when you come to town. I couldn't agree more. So, Monica, I want to start this episode off by reading a review that came in from one of our listeners, Vanessa. That's so sweet and makes us so happy. So, Vanessa writes, great hosts, great guests, great information. I love how biophilic solutions helps deepen our understanding of nature. It solidifies the truth of coming back home to nature and backs up everything with expert guests and scientific facts. It's also fun and easy listening with hosts who make you feel like you're just visiting old friends. I love that. Thank you so much, Vanessa. (laughs) I know, right? So to anyone listening who is enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review. We read them all and they really truly mean so much to us. Anyway, I'm so excited to share our guest today with our listeners because we are really diving into the psychology behind biophilic design, our evolutionary response to certain landscapes and even a concept that is the complete opposite of biophilia, which is biophobia, which is a fear of living things. This is such a rich episode full of so much wisdom, and we really contextualize things that we have touched on throughout the podcast. And our guide, if you will, is Dr. Judith Wagon, a psychologist whose work focuses on behavioral, social, and health impacts of buildings. Dr. Herwagen has worked extensively on biophilic design, particularly in its ability to enhance our well-being in that built environment. It's so interesting. Dr. Herwagen, or Judy, as we refer to her from here on out, is an affiliate professor in the University of Washington's College of Built Environments and currently serves as a research psychologist in the U.S. General Service Administration's Office of Federal High-Performance okay. Buildings. Okay, big, big, big title there. Okay. <laughs> it's a big one. We're going to keep going. She's also the co-editor of Biophilic Design, a theory, science, and practice of bringing buildings to life, which she won the 2009 Publishers Award in Architecture and Urban Planning. She also received the 2014 Design for Humanity Award and the American Society of Interior Designers. So clearly, she's going to be very interesting. (laughs) Very. Without further ado, let's get to our interview with Dr. Judith Herwagen. Hi, Judy. Thank you so much for being with us today. How are you? I'm doing great. It's going to be great to talk to you. This is a conversation I like and a topic I like. Yeah, we very feel much. the same way. <laughs> very much so. We always like to start off with a little bit of background. You know, you're out in Washington right now, but you've had an incredible experience and ride of how you got into biophilia. You probably can't give it in a snapshot, but I would love you to tell our listeners a little bit of the arc coming out of psychology and how you got into it. And by the way, we have so many wonderful friends that absolutely adore you. In fact, I I was just on with Bill Browning yesterday, and as well as Mary Devage, who both spoke highly of you and that you were really their inspiration for really getting into biophilia. So we'll start off with that. <laughs> so how did I do it? I think part of it just came from who I am. I grew up in the Midwest in an area not far from north of Chicago, and my brothers and I and our the neighbors were kids were always out in the woods. 
We were running around and building forts, climbing trees. And it, I just felt like I was diminished when I was indoors all the time. I hated being mm-hmm. indoors. Winter was just as good. We'd go skating and so forth. So I think that I had that connection to nature really ingrained in me as a child. And I think that makes a big difference. And I remember talking to Ed Wilson about that. He felt the same way. Uh-huh. He was always out in the woods doing stuff. So I think that started it. But we moved to Seattle in 1975. And I had just read Ed Wilson's book on sociobiology. Mm. I became really interested in that connection between animals and environment. And then his book on biophilia came out, and that started me right there. It just resonated with me, something that I really liked. And that's what started me thinking about it. There was very little research on this topic at that point. And I started working with an ecologist in the zoology department. And we wrote several articles about our connection to nature, particularly the biophilia hypothesis and the notion of evolution on the African savannas and how that affected what we are today and how we respond to nature. But I think it's just always been part of me. And I think it was easy to then step into this role because I really loved it. Isn't that funny how sometimes we evolve into understanding how impactful our spaces are, even if it's the dead of summer or the, the dead of winter, we both enjoy that, I guess, that ebb and flow of the seasons. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about the Savannah hypothesis and what that actually is and what that leads to next? Well, I think that it was Ed Wilson who started this thinking. And then there was a book called The Savannah Hypothesis that came out. And I I think what it was is the interest in human evolution. Where did humans evolve? How did they interact with the natural environment? And more importantly, what has that done to us as people? How do we think about nature? How do we think about the environment? What do we like? What are we afraid of that have really have long evolutionary pressures and influences? That doesn't mean we're not going to like lots of other environments, but there's something about the savanna that was really influential in human evolution. And part of it was just the landscape itself. It allowed you to see into the distance, the broad views, open views from a position of safety, whether it was a cave or a tree. So you could really survey the environment before you moved into it. And this is a big component of thinking about biophilia and so forth is how we respond to nature. And it's that ability to to see and to plan because there are lots of habitats where you can't do that. You can't see easily. And I think it was also the climate was positive in terms of it wasn't too cold. It didn't freeze mm-hmm. over. And then I think with the discovery of fire or the use of fire, the domestic use of fire, there were always fires on the savanna, but it was actually controlling fire that had an evolutionary significance that it was enormous. And there's been work on this because before fire, people had to go to bed really early because there were predators out there. So you had to find a cave, you had to find a place where you were safe in the dark. And what fire did was keep the predators at bay. You could actually sit around the fire, stay up longer. It aided the evolution of storytelling, aided the influence of meat in our diets because you could actually cook the meat. So it had an enormous influence. And I think if we extend it into the current way we live, we love fireplaces. We yeah. love campouts. We love all of these things that really have their origins in the African savanna and our evolutionary history. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I hadn't thought about the storytelling aspect of it, that you were able to stay up longer and have that community around a fire. 
Yeah, um, the social implications and also foraging was always in groups. It wasn't an individual thing. So I think there's that the way we live, too, is essentially the way we live now in family units, extended units, so that the social factors, I think, are something that isn't talked about in this field enough. But I think it really is a big component of biophilia. We don't experience it ourselves. We do if we're outside by ourselves, but I think that we experience camping is a social activity. A lot of these things, you know, have sitting around a campfire is a social activity, a fireplace at home. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's so deeply integrated into biophilia, but we don't think of it as an evolved biophilic response. Sure. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Thinking of fire as a biophilic design principle, even. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out? What's that, Monica? The Biophilic (laughs) Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes. And I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Sarah B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26th, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. It isn't. It's often not talked about. We, I think when we think about biophilia, we think about living things. Uh-huh. We think about plants and flowers. All of those were really important. Uh, flowers especially probably were important for signaling the appearance of fruit in the future. So uh-huh. flowers, you know, if you come back at some point, there's going to be fruit there. And actually, this was tested in some research in Europe recently where they I can't remember exactly what they did, but there was always pushback on this. We like flowers because they're beautiful. Uh-huh. Um, that's not the way evolution works. You know, it, <laughs> it has to have a value to us in some way or another. Oh, in survival. And in this case, it was food. Now we have flowers that I have flowers in my house all the time. They're not food, but I just love them. But they have been domesticated so much that they don't look any more like the flowers that are going to be out in the wild. But we made them beautiful because we had a bond with them in the first place. Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. Do you see the Savannah hypothesis being brought inside and into design principles now? I think that's a great question. 
because the field is having trouble with biophilic design. The people I talk with, Bill Browning and Katie Ryan, have done so much in this field to put that forward. Mm -hmm. And they still have issues as people don't see the value. They don't know exactly what they're supposed to do. And they'll say, prove it. Um, (laughs) There's lots and lots and lots of research out there. Mm -hmm. It's an enormous amount compared to when I first got into this field. And it all comes basically to the same conclusion. These aspects of nature that go under biophilic design, whether it's light, whether it's plants, whether it's distant views, all of these things have been shown to have human value, whether it's being able to think better, um, Mm -hmm. feeling uh, less stressed and in a better emotional frame of mind. And there's even been looking at social engagement in nature. That's sort of being explored now. But the problem is translating that into design dimensions. Because design, a building is a habitat. Mm-hmm. So you can't just plunk down things that don't make any sense within the context of that habitat. So it's got to be things that are linked together throughout the entire building. Mm-hmm. And I think that doesn't come across. And I don't think those of us who've done biophilia research find difficulty translating it because a lot of the people who do the research don't know about design and the designers don't know about biophilia. Sure. Mm-hmm. So I think it's making those linkages and it's really important. And there are beginnings of doing this, but mm-hmm. I think people, designers still struggle with convincing clients to do it. And I think that it has to be better explained in terms of how you do it. And knowing that even if you found stress reduction in the study, everything is controlled. So we know that it happens. But when you get into a built environment, there are so many other things influencing well-being and health and all of those things that we can't expect it to be the number one factor in how people feel. It's going to influence that. And it will provide places where people can rest, where they can ease their minds, whether they can reduce their stress, all those things we know about biophilia can be implemented in a building, but we can't expect productivity go up 100%. And all of these things, and health is affected by other things. But we know if we use the evidence more wisely and integrate it into a habitat type mm-hmm. perspective, mm-hmm. where you've got lots of different biophilic elements, some of them can be vegetation, others can be using light more wisely. Mm-hmm. Um, and even you know, we can use colored light now. We can shine it on walls. We can do all sorts of things. Why do we need gray walls? <laughs> because <laughs> gray in an environment when we yes. have color vision. And I think that there are so many ways to do this. And I think we really need to pull it together into a habitat perspective. Mm-hmm. That really is a building. There are different things you might do in different places. And we can't oversell it, though. I think that's kind of an issue here. Biophilia is the savior for all of us. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> we might feel that way, but not maybe not everyone else does. <laughs> well, I think it's an interesting perspective is we've found just explaining what the word means, right? Mm-hmm. But just <laughs> starting there is sort of a mouthful, if you will. Yes. And we've been thrilled. And I think we've mentioned this recently on the podcast. I really feel like the past couple of years in COVID and everything that's happened, people really are starting to appreciate nature and how they feel at home. And then as we're moving back into the office, how do they feel at the office? 
And so biophilic design, as far as trend or traction or whatever we want to call it, has really starting to hit a heyday. And I don't know if that's how you feel, but when I see Bill Browning's book in Vogue, we're getting somewhere, right? I think you're absolutely right. It's really, I think it's, it would be interesting. It may well be effect of COVID because people have gone outside more. Mm-hmm. They don't have to stay in their office. Yes. They can go out in the middle of the day and, you know, their work schedule is much more flexible. They can take their kids for walks. And I've seen more kids with little bikes than I've ever seen before. Um, <laughs> and I think that it may well have profoundly changed our perspective on nature. Mm-hmm. Being mm-hmm. able to access it so readily and how good you feel after you've been for a nice long walk outdoors. Yeah. I think it's all about education, right? I mean, that's why I'm seeing, I'm hearing a lot of people just say, oh, I had no idea that my circadian, I didn't even know about circadian rhythm. And I didn't realize like seeing light first thing in the day really helped set that clock. And I've listened to a lot of your work and read a lot of your work around light and how we go into these like little tiny cubicles at work and there's no light around us. And like you said, they're gray. And, but we never thought about that before COVID maybe, but now that light is being shined on why it's impacting that we can't sleep and it's impacting our health and our ability to work better and be more creative and cohesive and hopeful for a more biophilic future, for sure. It is. And I think that it's one of the factors that is people don't say it publicly, but that is influencing their desire not to go back to the office because they have this amenity and because they have more freedom Mm -hmm. of choice of when to do it. If they've got a half hour free walking around the neighborhood for a half hour, as long as you get your work done, people are recognizing that you can do these things and you can get out and it feels great after a half hour walk to come back in and you feel invigorated. Um, I think it's changed our perspective. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but I think it really is changing a perspective on nature. Yeah. And I think being outside was the safest place to be during COVID. We had a lot of like parks and beaches were closed down. They didn't quite know what was happening in those early days, but then all the national parks went up like crazy. Yeah. Bikes. You couldn't get bikes. Bikes were back ordered. These like solo stove, which is like a little bonfire for your backyard, like was going through the roof. (laughs) Yeah. Any kind of outdoor product. It's sort of interesting, but I like the idea that you're saying that part of maybe this resistance to going back into the office, besides the flexibility, it's the ability to your point of walking outside and to get outside. And maybe at home, they have more of a connection to nature, even if it's just a suburban sidewalk street versus these corporate towers that are in these sort of office complexes that maybe aren't as connected to nature. So I'd love to ask you, Mary, who we mentioned earlier, really ran all of Google's buildings, right? And did so much work, I think, with both of you and Bill. And so I think Google is out front on bringing nature into their offices, as well as setting the campus locations more integrated. And I feel like I just read that maybe Salesforce bought a bunch of acreage. Jennifer, what was that you sent me? They bought acreage. I believe it's in upstate New York. Maybe I'm wrong, but I know they just now it's a wellness center and that's where they're going to have their on-site meetings. It's more of an outdoor arena, but yeah, it's really fascinating. Isn't that interesting? So like now you have a company who's almost buying land and creating a wellness or nature retreat for the purpose of bringing people together. I mean, that's pretty exciting. I'm really glad to hear that. I didn't know. And I think this may be a real pivotal moment in mm-hmm. getting biophilic design. Mm-hmm. That's something we do easily 
It just becomes part of what we do. It's not going to feel so new now since people have really spent a lot of time outdoors and yes. recognize the value of that during a workday. Yeah. You know, they don't have to wait until the weekend to go outside. They can actually. You know, That's it. Oh my gosh, that's exactly it, Judy. Because I'm thinking about all the people I've met over the years that always, when I talked about nature experiences, they always said, well, that's for the weekend or that's for a vacation. But they never, I used to interview a lot of people here in New York City and it was never, nature is always something other than or separate from versus being integrated into their own lifestyle. And I've been thinking that they were a part of it. It was more like, oh, that's for, that's for lazy time or slow down time on the weekends versus their everyday. I think of it as yoga for the brain, really. You're, when you're outside, you're taking that presence of the moment in and it really is that healing space. I think that's a great analogy. I think that is it. And I, I don't think there's much talk about this in the return to work. And there's so much emphasis on the commute, which is a big factor. Nobody wants to drive yep. through traffic every day. But I think there is something about the independence of spirit that you can do these things during the day because there's always time to go for a 15 minute walk. Yeah, that's all you can afford. But being able to eat your lunch outdoors, being able to when your kids are come home from school, go outside with them for a while. I think that yeah. those things are just not mentioned as much as they should, because I think that the impact of being outdoors mm-hmm. is really powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's better if you have an outdoors that has some vegetation, but at least you have the sky, you have the light. There's always those components of a natural environment, even without vegetation and stuff. So daylight alone and seeing the sky, I think we don't pay enough attention to the sky in biophilic design because, mm-hmm. you know, from all the big high rise buildings, those on the higher floors cost more because you've got great views. You can see the sky. You can see the into the distance that is built into our genes. Yeah. That, that desire for prospect, for seeing what's going on. You can see a storm coming if you can see the sky. And I think that we don't think about why that's valuable. Mm, right, right. And I think having known Bill for a little while now and read his patterns, and we've interviewed him on the show, it's fascinating. And one of them is prospect. And what, what's the other one? Prospect is when you can see broadly. And what's and the one when you're back? Refuge. Refuge. Yeah. I'm always just sort of really, it was an aha moment for me. And I think that's what I like to think biophilia is and can be for people. It can be an aha moment, this thing that is right in front of your nose, but you didn't really understand why Mm -hmm. it made you feel so good. Just like the corner booth at a restaurant. Like, why do you want that booth? And it's these reasons that have been embedded in us or genetically encoded in us, which I think is interesting how you put it. I wish we had a term other than biophilia because it does include these things like long distance views. It has to do with our comfort in the environment and our sense of feeling safe, of being mm-hmm. able to get resources. And a lot of that isn't living things. It is mm-hmm. natural stuff like views and things of wayfinding. Mm-hmm. All of those things aren't necessarily vegetation. They're not living. Sure. Um, right. Yeah. Natural no, environment that is, it's the nature itself, the natural setting that I think is important. 
And I think it's interesting because we talk about biophilia, like the big B biophilia and having the design aspect is one part of it, these elements of design. But I do think you're right that there are other maybe principles or concepts that can be put underneath it that I do think Ed Wilson really brought to the forefront. Who do you see or is there anybody, I mean, obviously you and Bill and a lot of people are doing work, but is there anybody out there that's bringing all of it together beyond the design world, picking up maybe the mantle of where Wilson left off? Tough question. Certainly not that I have come across. I think that people are still stovepiped into their designers or their Mm -hmm. scientists or their this Mm -hmm. or their that. You just raised something that would be a great idea for bringing all of these people together who do these different things. Mm -hmm. And you sort of look at this problem. I think it's a a real problem that needs to be solved. Mm -hmm. And because our professions teach us just very narrowly, we don't have that kind of broad expertise. So it's going to have to be teams, but maybe you can teach teams. So you've got expertise and, and that you, I think it really needs to be thought through. They need to sit down for how this happens. But I think that what we do is create teams that do this with different expertise, but they integrate it. Mm-hmm. You don't come in as a specialist in this, you become sort of a specialist in the whole area. Mm. I would love to see a group form that tries this. Sure. Yeah, well, you now you're part of it. We're going <laughs> exactly. to just, just make it happen, Judy. We know all the people, right? Yeah. So, because I do think that there is, again, I think it's phenomenal that designers and architects and researchers and social scientists have really taken it and made it happen. And again, the consumer can then start to bring it into their world and or be affected by it, by the built environment, whether that's a home or a workspace, or obviously there's amazing research on hospitals. But yeah, I do wonder what's that Because taking a walk, which core component of Jennifer's work is really, you know, the benefits of getting outside and especially walking really doesn't, there's biophilic aspects to it, but taking a walk is not part of biophilic design per se, but it might be part of a biophilic lifestyle. It could be. I just really think we need a new term. Okay. I think people get hung up by biophilia, meaning plants. Mm, Yes. Yes. Totally agree. Yeah. When we try and educate that it's all living things, people, animals, plants. But again, I think it's just a new term and people are confused and they think exactly. it's kind of hard to say and hard to spell. And yeah, we have to figure out a way of talking about his habitat. You know, I love that. I love uh, habitat. Because mm-hmm. everyone understands the concept of a habitat mm-hmm. so that, you know, you've got to have many elements in it. Not just Mm -hmm. plants. And I think that you can talk about a natural habitat. I wouldn't even put, but I think we need a bigger term that Mm -hmm. does sort of say something about this is an ecosystem. This is a habitat. Mm -hmm. And I like habitat better because I think that's an easier thing for people to understand. I think habitat is great. Also, either one of them suggests something bigger that has component parts that act together. Mm -hmm. ecosystem has numerous parts and they all fit together to form and a habitat is the same thing it has different components that all work together and Mm -hmm. i think the building is a habitat that has all of these elements that are naturalistic and derived from biophilic theory but they Mm -hmm. are thought of not as individual elements but as a whole 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's something about habitat. And this is personally, my kids are in high school now, but you're thinking of a terrarium where you would create a habitat for an animal you were taking care of and the care that you go about that of what you're going to put in it and what you're going to feed it and the light and the warmth and all the things. But sometimes maybe we don't think as much about our habitat. <laughs> And it's the same thing. We need all these elements to thrive. Buildings as habitats. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Because we're always so busy taking the certain supplements. We're doing the right meals at home. We're doing all the other things and going to exercise classes. But we never, ever take that time to be educated or we have never been like, there's nothing offered to us in school as to understand like what our environment, our immediate environment of our habitat at home or a habitat at work, what's that actually doing to us? The sound, sounds around us, the lighting, the textures, when you really break it down, you think about our habitat. I mean, that's got to be a key component to our health. Absolutely. Being in the right place matters. Yeah. And we talk about it in the built environmental, like placemaking, but placemaking also doesn't capture maybe the squishy plant side of it, if you will, the living side of it. Placemaking feels very like hardscapes, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we go to the other end of the spectrum, Monica? We go from biophilia to what actually is biophobia? Yes. Can we discuss that? Because it's not really something we've ever, we've never mentioned biophobia on the podcast before. So I'd love to get your thoughts on what that actually is, Judy. Well, actually, it's fear of living things. And I think that some of the best work in this area has been done on spiders and snakes Mm. are the things that people are really afraid of. There's interesting research that was done in Sweden. I'm forgetting the researcher's name now. But what he did was put people in a situation where they were looking at a screen and something would come on the screen so fast that they couldn't see it. They put their hands then into some kind of a device that would give them a little bit of a shock or something. Ah. And what they were doing was measuring the fear response. Hmm. Uh, And what they would do was show these things so quickly that you could not consciously remember them, a spider or a snake. And they exhibited the fear response immediately. Wow. And they then showed them pictures of cars, the things that really are dangerous for us, cars, guns, knives, things of that. No response at all. So what this is saying that is that there are some things that have been so important to our survival that we needed to avoid or we needed to be able to anticipate in some way that this helped evolve these fears in our brains. And the thing is that you don't see spiders or snakes easily mm-hmm. until near them. A snake can be hidden in the grass and you get too close and bam, the same thing with a spider. And it's these things that we can't see or we can't anticipate, particularly when I was talking about the way we think of the environment, it's that distant view that's often really important to us and seeing things clearly. And if you're in a place where you can't and snakes and spiders tend to be in vegetated places or, or places that have darkness and shade, so you can't see them. Mm-hmm. And if you make a mistake, these are deadly critters. So the idea is that our fear of these evolved uh, so that we could anticipate them unconsciously. Mm. So I'm not sure what more research has been done in the area of biophobia, but certainly darkness, because we have vision that isn't very good at night. The same environment in the daytime, like a nice park in New York City, can be fearful at night if there's mm-hmm. no light. And I think people are 
really <laughs> afraid of the dark. And I think it's because you can't see potential dangers. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And I've seen lots of grown men jump when they see a rat. So I don't know if that's the equivalent to a snake or a spider, but when the rats come out at night, I see a lot of people jumping in the streets. (laughs) It's a lot. Rats are one of those other animals that we respond to very quickly and negatively and want to get away from. (laughs) And it is interesting. So we moved, I grew up in Los Angeles, so like tons of lights everywhere like you kind of can't find darkness right it's just huge grid and city and then moved to Atlanta and then moved down to Serenby and Serenby's located in the middle of the country and there really aren't street lights and when I've had friends visit city folk or whatever you know family if they drive in at night it's frightening to them which is so interesting to me because I think of nature as such a glorious place, but I think I forget. I've gotten used to that, that there aren't lights driving through the country, but it sets people up with an unknown. An unknown is fearful. What we don't know can make us nervous and and anxious. And so I think that's really interesting, that phobia that we have Mm -hmm. of these things. And if you think about crimes, a lot of crimes happen in the darkness at night. Yeah. Walking in places that aren't well lit. So there's a reason for Mm -hmm. for that fear in terms of our evolutionary history as well as our current history. Yes. Yes, very much so. The work that you're doing now, how are students reacting? Who's coming into, I don't know if we call it the industry or the concept, like what are you seeing right now on the ground in Washington with the work you're doing? Only experience I have with this is I teach a course on biophilic design every year at the University of Washington. Mm -hmm. Most of my work life is totally away from this. It doesn't have anything to do with biophilia, but it's something I just keep up with because I like it. Yeah. We had to close the class before all of the students who wanted to attend could attend. But I think they're really interested. I think that they see a real value of it for architecture. And I think it's going to grow. I think what they need is more people who can teach it. Okay. Experts who are working in this field, particularly designers. Okay. I'm a psychologist, so my design skills would be close to zero. (laughs) (laughs) You and me both, Judy. (laughs) I think that designers are beginning to, and they're beginning to teach it in studios. But I think that a class that goes into the research on it, the kinds of things that are important to understand how to use this it really comes with what we know about projects that have been done, what we know about the history, the kinds of things I've been talking about or what I talk about in the class. And there's a pragmatic component to it, too, mm-hmm. having students use these principles and thoughts and design and discuss them. And in fact, after this presentation, I'm going to the University of Washington to the end of semester project shows. And one of them is on biophilic design. So I'll know more after this. Oh, wonderful. Well, and we've gotten a ton of questions from people trying to find continuing education or are there degrees in this? And we haven't really had an answer. There's a few people that are doing different things, but can you point us in a good direction besides your class that's oversubscribed? Unfortunately, no. (laughs) There probably are people who teach it in universities, in architecture programs. And I know there's a lot of interest, but it's one of those funny things that falls in between the cracks. There's people who Mm. academically are interested in the theory and the Mm. science, not the practice of what you do with it. They wouldn't know how to do that. And then you've got the designers 
who are really interested in the practice, but the intellectual and the science part of it mm. isn't something that they are experienced with. It's because our, you know, we're so stovepiped in our professions. You can't pull people together. The researchers talk in ways that people's eyes glaze over. Yeah, right. It's so scientific that I think there's a translation issue here. Okay. Being a journalist, and I have a background in journalism, oh. so I think it makes me always think in simple terms. Want to educate somebody, not really big scientific terms okay. and uh, long-winded explanations, but really trying to translate it into a form with, that that audience will understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've always done that because it's in my nature not to be overly scientific because I know it bores me. And it's just, <laughs> just data and data and data. I think it's important to build a case. Mm-hmm. But after that, you have to really say, OK, how do we do this? Right. How do we choose? How do we know what to do where? And that's where the design comes in. That's where you really have, you know, where the science and the design become linked. Mm-hmm. Um, you need the science behind it to understand what it is you want to do, but the design that tells you how to do it. Yeah, it really resonates with me, the stovepipe or siloed. So figuring out, is there some type of education that can bring those things together to your point of the theory and the history and a lot of the research and data, but also have the practical, it's almost like a biophilia 101 and biophilia 102, and then kind of move you into it. It's really fascinating. Maybe there's a book in your future to another book in your future that can help weave all this together or um, I think it's a book that needs to be written by scientists and designers mm -hmm. I think that making that link so that actually just some sort of a small conference on this if we could find a a funder to help with people's travel would be fabulous to spend several days uh, with a group that some who are scientists some who are designers and then these translators and I think something like that would be extremely valuable because it could get the ball rolling. On yeah, yeah. And we you're aware of our Biophilic Leadership Summit that has fits and starts because of COVID, but we did it for three years and we'll bring it back in 2023. And we're in the process right now of sort of re-strategizing what does that need to look at? And everything you're saying to me is really inspiring to think about what should it look like, you know, because it really is an educational tool to spread leaders' knowledge, but I really like everything you're saying. Let me ask you, as we start to wrap up, climate change. As a marketing and communications person, I also have the, how do we communicate about biophilia and how do we talk about it? And one thing that I have the belief that, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about climate change. They don't know what to do about it. So that's sort of, they're frozen. And so if we can sort of bring them into the conversation through more of a love and need and understanding of nature and why we need it, a la biophilia, does that get them in to that climate conversation what are your thoughts about that and how biophilia can be utilized? I, I think that's a really insightful comment because I think that the way I was thinking about biophilia and climate is the negative impact that climate change is having on 
the natural environment. Mm -hmm. Uh, This past summer was with the fires and the floods and the excessively hot weather, on and on and on, one after another. And then then the big storms and the that carried out winter storms and the tornadoes and all of this, the intensity of those is influenced by climate change, obviously. And Mm -hmm. a lot of it has to do with destruction of natural habitats. Mm. So that you do that, you take away the ability of the earth to do what it's always done and destroying habitats and stuff like that is a Mm -hmm. big factor. And I think it's scary and depressing. Mm -hmm. And it's a sense that that nature is at harm, but the climate is at harm also. And how do we, it seems like such a big problem. I can see people throwing their hands up. What can I do about it? And I think it has to be, an integrated large-scale response from everybody contributing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and there must be examples in history mm-hmm. where certainly wars, you know, a terrible thing to talk about, but people would come together at, and this is a, a goofy analogy, but I think what's happening now in Ukraine is that sort of everybody saying, we're not going to go with this. Their survival is at risk. Mm-hmm. And I think that, there's nothing you don't want to scare people so much that they feel like there's nothing they can do. Yeah, sure. but I think that this is an existential threat mm-hmm. and people who have trouble dealing with and understandably with threats of that sort. And they just go about their lives saying, I can't do anything about it. Yeah. I don't know that anybody has any solutions for. I know. I know how to pull it back. Yeah, well, in your essay that is a semi-recent essay, The Biophilic Design and Climate Change, that was more looking at health, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're looking at the health impacts of all of those things. And clearly, they're all integrated. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the problem has to be solved in an integrated way. It's just, just like biophilic design. It's got to bring in people from different perspectives, have them share their knowledge about what it is that is important when mm-hmm. it needs to be supported, then how do you support it? I'm not pessimistic about this. I think that people will come to their senses about the importance of climate and the destruction of the climate and what is impact it's having on our lives as mm-hmm. well as the, the natural environment and mm-hmm. all the species that are are being eliminated. I, I'm hopeful for the human species that we can say, <laughs> okay, enough is enough. Let's yeah. solve this problem. It's baby steps, I think. Right. And even though we're this climactic part in our lives, I always think there's like so much hope. And I feel like there's so many young people that are really interested. And I've been in beauty for 25 years and I see like that's a very big contributor to massive waste. But I always try and encourage these businesses that are all about the ingredients that they're using to actually go outside (laughs) and know the ingredients that they're actually using. Some of them are in their own parks. So unless you get out there to witness it and smell it and really feel it for yourselves, you are so disconnected from even the beauty products that we're using. Like, oh, I didn't know which hazel grew down the street from me. So I think it's just that kind of, like you were saying before, that biophilic need to understand where things and not just see it, but really be a part of that chain of action, of feeling it, seeing it, and then being accustomed to caring a little bit more about it. I think that's a great perspective. And I think it, it will be the younger generations because they're inheriting something that isn't great. Yeah. yeah. That is, you know, is, can be terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you're educating them. Yeah. That's great. 
helping them start on a path to have a better understanding. Because we always talk here, if you don't know, you don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It's annoying. Yeah, <laughs> annoying. annoying. And I do really think Habitat is wonderful because if we maybe if we talked about how instead of we're saying we're destroying the planet, we're destroying the climate, or we're destroying the ecosystem, th- those terms... I don't know if maybe they're not resonating anymore, but if we start saying, well, you're ruining your habitat. Yes. Somehow that has life in it a little bit more. Yeah. It does suggest life, not just a place. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So maybe, so is there anything you want to end on and share with us? Any future projects or last thoughts? No, I just think this has been a great discussion. Thank I, you. I, I think this is the kind of thing that should just, be a model for how to talk about this. Mm. And I think that is so illuminating for me. I, oh, Judy, that's um, a, such a wonderful compliment. And we'll have to have you out to Sarah. Now that Sarah Milligan Toffler lives here, I know you guys are really close. We'll have to have a little biophilic party. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to come down for that too. Yeah. Jen's coming in a week or so. And then I know the Children and Nature Network conference is here in Atlanta in a month or so. I don't know if you're planning on attending. I think it would be great to actually plan some sort of a biophilic design conference. Perfect. Let's make it happen. Make it happen. And I think I would start small. I mean, there have been groups I've been to that, like the biophilic design book that it was a group of the authors. So there were just a few other people. So it was 20 people. Love it. I think that would be wonderful. And I think that just getting that seed started, I think getting it too big, 20 people is a kind of a nice number in different disciplines mm-hmm. love it. but who are all interested in this topic well let's try and figure out if we can do that 20 people in the fall maybe we'll get you and bill and you guys can help be, curate it and get some maybe. designers together and mm-hmm. a, a couple yeah. of researchers yeah. we um, can document they, it and yeah you know if they can develop some kind of a blueprint for how do we move forward with this integrated approach mm-hmm. well i think the first step is getting us all together we can have a big dinner party and a, a two-day we've got an inn we've got places to stay and food to eat <laughs> monica loves to just invite I everyone to <laughs> yeah come on down DNA. <laughs> i think that would be fun and not just fun enlightening and important yeah. perfect Well, we're going to make it happen, Judy. And thank you so much for your time. I really just a joy to get to meet. And your wisdom. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom. And we can keep talking to you for hours. So we really appreciate your time and doing this with us today. I thank you for your, I've learned from you too. This is what this is all about. (laughs) Sharing. Mutual learning, not just one way learning. Totally. God, if we stop being curious, then we stop living. In trouble. It was great. I really enjoyed it too. Well, thank you so much, Judy. I don't even know where to begin, Jennifer. I got so much out of that conversation and I'm really curious what your initial thoughts are. Same here. There's so much, but I think the thing that really stands out to me is this idea of the built environment being a type of habitat. That was a total perspective shift for me, but one of those things that just made total sense once someone said it out loud. Yeah, that stood out to me as well. Habitat is a word so clearly connected to the natural world that we don't really use a lot. We learn about, I don't know, animal habitats in school, but it also indicates a space where certain needs are being met. Mm-hmm. So if we shifted our mindset to home as a habitat or the office as a habitat, I like to think that we would have a major implications for the way we build and design those spaces. 
Yep. And one of the other things that fascinated me was the idea that nature has really shaped us as a species Mm -hmm. that I think the most striking example of was the fireplace, how they allowed humans to stay up later. Right. And you keep you warm, tell stories around the fire and especially as a catalyst for meat. I know. And, you know, I love a good fireplace (laughs) and connections between our preferences for prospect and the way we evolved on the African savanna. The threads and connections are endlessly fascinating to me as well. Yeah, I love the savanna hypothesis. We ended the conversation talking about climate change and we landed on two very distinct ideas, although I think they're both very true. So on the one hand, you and I have always seen biophilia as sort of a unique entry point for talking about climate in a wider sense, that it's important for people to understand that they are part of nature and not separate from it. And if they understand that, then possibly we'll be more motivated to make thoughtful choices in that nature habitat. And then the other point that Judy mentioned was we have this whole notion of biophilia getting a little more complicated, right? When we think of the harmful effects of climate change and we take that into account, you know, it's one thing to get outside on a beautiful sunny day, but we're seeing more and more harsh, unpredictable weather, which is also part of biophilia. It really is. And it's so scary to think about, but all the more motivation to take action. And I agree with you that biophilia is really a useful way to talk about climate action. Yeah, there's such an appetite for biophilic design in the wake of COVID, and so many young people are committed to the fight for a healthy and thriving climate. So even though it is scary sometimes, we never want to be unrealistic about the challenges we face. I think it's important to never lose sight of the optimism for really a shared biophilic future. 100%. Well, we hope you enjoyed the conversation with Dr. Hirwagen as much as we did. And I'll talk to you in a few weeks, Monica. I know. I'll miss you. I'll miss you too. Okay. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you're enjoying it, we would love for you to subscribe on your favorite listening app, as well as give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really does help people find us. It does really go such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks again for hitting the subscribe button and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now part of the biophilic movement.